I would imagine it's safe to say we all love a good story, right? Why else do we spend the money on going to movies or buying books, even ones that are not real, fictional ones? And yet we get caught up in those stories. Some of us might even cry when somebody dies, but they didn't really die. Or we laugh, or we get swept up into a drama when there's twists and turns. The author of The Lord of the Rings was a Christian, J.R.R. Tolkien, at least in the broader Christian sense of the word. He was convinced that part of the reason why people loved his stories, The Lord of the Rings, wasn't because they thought those things were real, but because as people read them, they believed that there were truths and realities that they wanted to be true or that were true in a deeper way. In other words, he believes that we all want good to triumph over evil. We see hatred and ugliness and evil in the world, and we really do long for greater love and beauty, like a good love story. Have you ever noticed what makes the most money in the box office? Not depressing documentaries that tell you about something real, but the movies with happy endings and heroic sacrifices. You see, we all long for a good story. And this morning as we come to the end of our study in Genesis, I feel like I'm saying this every week, but we are coming to one of the best stories in all the Bible. You will hear about heroic sacrifices, good triumphing over evil. You're going to hear an amazing love story with incredible forgiveness and a happy ending. But before we dive into that story, I want you to know three things as we go through it. One, this story's real. This is not fictional. This is not a legend or a myth. This is a true story. Two, this story is not just meant to entertain, although it's very entertaining. This story, in fact, has the power to transform your life. And three, this story is pointing to a greater story. A greater story that is behind all stories, and that when you see the way this story points to the greater, bigger story, you understand the life-changing power that it possesses even more. So let's first see that this story is real. There's so many good parts of this story that I'm tempted to think that maybe it wasn't real. That's what I mean, that this is real. This happened in history. There's a lot of historical facts throughout it. I'll point out a couple of them throughout. But it's not just one other ancient myth or legend. What I love about it in part is that it speaks so honestly, transparently, and frankly about some of the struggles and pains that many of us face in our life. Let's dive in so you can see exactly what I mean. Genesis chapter 37 is where we're going to begin. It's on page 31 in these black Bibles around you. I'm going to do a lot of summarizing because it's a long story, and I want us to make sure we see the big picture. It says in verse 1 that there was a man named Jacob, and I'm going to refer to him as Israel because as we saw last week, this man gets his name changed. So Jacob, who's also named Israel, I'm referring to the same person. So Israel lived in a land of Canaan in verse 1, and he's there with his 12 sons we know from chapters previously. One of those sons we see in verse 2 is a man named Joseph. 
And he's 17 now, and Joseph's mom was Rachel. Rachel was the one that Israel loved the most. He ended up having these 12 sons through four different women. And so all of Joseph's brothers, 10 of them at least, were born from three other women, and they were, you could call, stepbrothers to Joseph. Now, it's not always the case that stepfamilies don't get along, but it does seem like a common thing that sibling rivalry happens between stepbrothers and sisters, and this story is no different. Joseph 17, as you look down at chapters, chapter 37, verses 2 and 3, you'll notice that Israel loved Joseph more than all of his brothers, and he was the favorite, and he knew it. Notice the way verse 2 seems to suggest that he is better than all the other brothers. He tells a bad report, which as you study this, it seems to be either he lies or exaggerates or maybe is just a big tattletale. Either way, he seems a bit self-righteous right from the get-go. Notice the way every part of this opening paragraph is like a hidden volcano bubbling inside as family drama is about to explode. Israel did not just love Joseph more and keep it to himself. Everybody knew that Israel loved Joseph more. He gave him a special robe. Notice in verse 3, this special robe of many colors, it says in the text. We're not really sure if it was a multicolored, technicolor dream coat, as the modern play has suggested. We do know it's expensive. We do know it's a symbol of Israel's favoritism. And so now everybody knows that Joseph is the most loved child, and that's why verse 4 makes it plain. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. Do you hear, do you see the bubbling volcano about to erupt in this family? These two paragraphs in the next part of the story explain that Joseph has two dreams, and both dreams are about how Joseph is going to become better than all of his other brothers, and that they will bow down to him. The first dream, the brothers respond this way in verse 8. Are you indeed to reign over us and rule over us? When they heard this, they hated him even more for his dream and for his words. Now, if you and I were a normal person and you think to yourself, well, that didn't go so well, you know? Maybe next time around you'd keep that dream to yourself. That got me and my brothers a little tension in the room. They hated him even more. But that's the thing. Joseph is not pictured in this story as just another normal person. Maybe he's a psychopath. Maybe he's one of these socially awkward people that can't pick up cues and just says whatever he's thinking. We don't know for sure, but he is ridiculously proud or blind or something because he hears another dream, and when he has that dream, he tells his brothers again. And of course, they hate him even more. Look down at verse 9, and another dream, and he tells it to the brothers, and then drop down, and the brothers in verse 11 says, they are very jealous of him even more. What was Joseph thinking? Like seriously, what was Joseph thinking? Even his father, Israel, who loves him, has to reprimand him. Look at that in verse 10. What is this dream you have dreamed of, his father said? You think your mother and I are going to come and bow down before you? Now remember, put this in patriarchal ancient society. He's a younger brother. He's not the oldest son. Even though Israel loves him a lot, there's no way that all the brothers and family is going to bow down to this younger, lesser son. What is Joseph thinking? He's out of his mind. 
And this first part of the story sets up this volcano explosion that I've been alluding to. We're going to pick up speed and move through these chapters, but the next scene we see Joseph being sent out to go and check on all his brothers as they're working out in a field of Shechem. Joseph goes out to Shechem and the brothers are not there, so instead of meeting his brothers, he meets some random man who the text says is wandering around, and when you read it closely, it seems that he's lost. Now, I mention that story because I want you to realize that every little part of this story is not wasted. As we get to the end, you'll see that all these little details add up to a grand conclusion. So keep that in mind. Now, this lost man tells Joseph that his brothers have gone to Dothan. And so Joseph heads to Dothan. Some have speculated that the brothers knew Joseph would come check on him, and they had plans. And so Dothan's a little further away, and if they did something with Joseph, then nobody would find out about it. Look what happens in verse 18 of chapter 37. When they saw him, that is Joseph, afar, and before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. The volcano is about to erupt. Here comes that dreamer, they said. Most of the brothers just want to kill him right there on the spot and throw him in a pit, but the oldest brother, Reuben, convinces, let's not shed any blood. Let's just throw him in a pit and leave him. Now, verse 22, as you see, Reuben wants to later go rescue the brother and bring him back to his father. So Reuben is the only one that's not having violence on his mind. The brothers decide not to kill him right then and there. And it says they stripped him of his robe. And it's not just, oh, they took off his robe. They stripped him. And it's the word used to skin an animal clean. This is gruesome. This is violent and intense. Not supposed to see like a little, oh, here's your coat. Let me hang it up for you. This is nasty. After all this, they throw him in a pit. And they're tired, so they take a little break, and they're hungry, and they sit down to eat. As they sit down to eat, Reuben must have gone off and gone back to work. He's the sensible, hardworking one, it seems. And as they do so, A traveling caravan of men, Midianites, as we'll find later in the story. They come by, and Judah has an idea. Hey, let's not just kill our brother. Let's get something out of this. So they sell him for 20 pieces of silver, and now Joseph's gone. Reuben comes back, and he says, where's Joseph? I thought he was in the pit. No, he's gone. They rip up his robe. They put animal blood all over it, and they come back home, and they act innocent They go to their father, Israel, and say, hey, we just happened to find this. Is this this Joseph's robe? And sure enough, Israel inspects it and says, yes, this is my son's robe. And the only conclusion he can come to is that Joseph must have been torn to pieces by some wild animal, and the brothers just happened to find the remains. Israel cries. He weeps. Remember, this is his favorite son. Cries for days, and no one can console him. No one can make him happy. Meanwhile, travelers passing through passed Joseph off and sold him to an Egyptian man named Potiphar, who's the captain of the king's guard. So, this is a wealthy man, this is a man with lots of slaves, and he takes Joseph in. While that's happening, a story that seems odd, and many scholars and commentators point out that it just interrupts the whole story, but I don't think that that's the case at all. It makes perfect sense with the flow and the pattern of this literary structure in the story. 
What we have next in chapter 38 is a story about Judah. Remember the one that wanted to sell him? That was his idea? Well, I'm not going to go into all the details, but this story is about Judah's sexual sin, sleeping with his daughter-in-law, even though he didn't know it was her. He thought it was a prostitute. And what we find from this story is that this scene sets up what we're about to see as we pick up the Joseph story. So if you want to, later in the day, go and read chapter 38 and 39. Compare them next to one another and see how a sexual act is being contrasted. One a sinful man and one a righteous man. Anyway, to that scene we now turn in chapter 39. Joseph is an excellent slave for Potiphar, the captain. He's promoted as manager over the whole house. And Joseph, it says in the story, is very handsome. Mm, Very handsome. Potiphar's wife cannot contain herself. And so in verse 7 of chapter 39, she says, lie with me. This is a very aggressive lie with me. The English translation makes it sound like, oh, lie with me or do this. But this is very strong. You, me, now. That's how you should probably read it. And if not that, something more if you get the gist. Joseph does not give in, and this is not just once that she comes up to him. Look very closely at verse 10 of chapter 39. He continues to say no to her after she reaches out to him day after day. Very different from Judah's sexual immorality. But then one day she grabbed him by his clothes, his garment, said strong words, yeah, you and me now again. He couldn't get out of this grip, so he like slips out of his shirt or something, and he runs away. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, some think that Paul was saying when he says flee from sexual immorality, he has this picture in mind, run like Joseph ran from sexual immorality. She wanted him bad, and so she was angry when Joseph slipped away. So she took his clothes and decided to frame him and accuse him for trying to sleep with her. Joseph did not commit adultery. He did not sleep with her. But look, she says, here's his clothes. And the servants, and then eventually Potiphar believes her. The lie works. Potiphar is upset, and he throws Joseph into prison. But look what happens when he's in prison. Verses 21 through 22. But the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made succeed. I want you to start seeing the pattern in this story. Things look like they're going really well for Joseph. A nice coat. His dad loves him, getting these dreams, everybody's going to be bowing down, and then boom, everything goes really bad, really fast. And then he's a slave. But then look, everything starts going really well again, and he's now in charge of the whole house of Potiphar. And then crash, everything goes really bad, really quick. But then things start looking up. He's now in charge of all the prison. He's the one that's seen as a good prisoner. And so this is the pattern. We see again and again, up, down, up, down. Things were looking good. 
And then look what happens in chapter 40, verses 20 through 23. Joseph thinks things are looking up again because there's a prisoner he thinks is going to help him. This prisoner used to work for the king of Egypt and had a dream, and he told Joseph the dream, and Joseph told him that the dream was about how he was going to get out of prison. So he's like, yeah, things are looking good again. I'm going to get out of prison. This guy's going to help me out when he's out on the other side. I know it. Verses 20 through 23 of chapter 40. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all the servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph's dream had interpreted. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. Yet again, things were looking good. He had a way out. God was providing. And then he forgot him. And read the very next verse. For two whole years. Yeah, that would be a setback. The guy forgot him. Could you imagine what that would have been like? We're never told what Joseph's thinking or feeling in all of these dark days, but I don't think it takes much of our imaginations to imagine how to fill in the details. This is a real story with real events in history. The Pharaoh of Egypt really did release prisoners on his birthday. We can know that not just from reading our Bibles. This story seems to fit historical accuracies. So make sure you remember that Joseph is a real man and had real temptations to be depressed, discouraged, and just give up altogether. How's he ever going to get out? Things just keep getting worse and worse. Chapter 41 tells us how. In chapter 41, we hear that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, has a dream, and the dream was about big, fat cows and real skinny cows. Going quickly through, so just know that the dream is not something he understands, but he wants to, so he asks the cupbearer, and all of a sudden, the cupbearer remembers, oh yeah, there's this guy. Yeah, he's in the prison, and he understands dreams. So Pharaoh says, what are you waiting for? Go get him. And so they go bring Joseph out of prison. And Joseph tells the Pharaoh that this dream means that there's a famine coming, and the skinny cows are the famine. But before the famine comes, there's going to be fat cows. And there's going to be so much food that you won't even know what to do with it. So what they should do is save up during the abundance and the fat cow days. And then when the famine comes, they're going to be well cared for. Pharaoh is really impressed. Look what he says in verse 39 of chapter 41. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Only as regards to the throne of Egypt. This man is now the second-hand man to the most powerful man in the earth in that day. Whew! Talk about things are looking up again. I want you to notice one little detail it's going to be important as we get to this message later. Verse 46 of chapter 41. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Tuck that away. 30 years old. 
Now, the rest of chapter 41 tells us that the famine came just like the dream that was interpreted by Joseph. It affected everybody in Egypt and everyone around Egypt, including Joseph's family back in Canaan. Oh, yeah, remember them? The brothers in Israel? Things were getting rough, so Israel says to his sons, go get food. I hear there is food in Egypt. Do you see what's happening now? Everything's coming back. Family will be reunited. Dun, dun, dun. Like, at this point, you're like, what's going to happen? He's going to get his chance. He's going to get his revenge. These brothers, remember what they did to him? Yeah. What is going to happen? Look at chapter 42, verses 6 through 11. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, the food, that is, that was saved up during the years of blessing. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Remember the dreams of them coming and bowing down before him? Oh, they have come true. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, no, my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. So what's going on here? Why in the world is he talking about them being spies? Why did he just kill them? Why didn't he tell them, hey, I'm Joseph. He knew who they were. They didn't know who he was. He was Egyptian. Remember, he's now, this is after the seven years of abundance. He's at close to 40 years old now. The last time they saw him, he was 17. Joseph has a plan. He's going to turn the tables on his brothers. We're going to skip forward all the way to chapter 44 to see the big reversal. But Joseph's plan is that all of his brothers will be in front of him, and they're trying to get food. And as they get this food, Joseph plants a silver cup in Benjamin's bag. Benjamin, by the way, is the other son that was born of Rachel. Rachel was the special wife of the wives. So this is the only remaining special son and the youngest of them all. He wanted to make it look like that Benjamin was stealing this silver cup so that Benjamin would be in big trouble and the brothers would have to go back home and tell their dad that, yeah, we lost Benjamin. It's a pretty smart plan. Let's look at chapter 44, verses 9 through 13. Which of your servants is found will die? Because Joseph's confronting them. Hey, who stole my cup? They're like, we don't have your cup. He says, well, if I find your cup, that person's going to die. Verse 10. And they said, okay, if you find a cup, let it be as you say. He who is found with it will be the servant and the rest of you will be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered their sacks to the ground, and each man opened their sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was there found in Benjamin's sack. So what do the brothers do? They tear their clothes apart. They are just completely upset. No way. Benjamin's going to die. The trick worked. Joseph got all his brothers to think that Benjamin was now going to die. What's amazing 
is what Judah does in the rest of this chapter. Remember Judah? The one sleeping with the daughter-in-law? The one who had the plan to sell him off? He goes before Joseph and pleads for Benjamin's life and says, hey, I'll even switch places with Benjamin. My life for his. I'll be a substitute. He's willing to die. What sacrificial love. Here comes the best part of the story. Chapter 45, verses 1 through 9. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him. When Joseph made himself known to his brothers, he wept out loud so the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. I mean, that's loud, isn't it? And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But the brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. What? For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for two years, and there are yet five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of of all his house and ruler of all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not This is remarkable. The rest of the book is going to go on and explain how the brothers go and convince their dad, Israel, to come to Egypt, have this wonderful family reunion of tears and joy and hugs. Israel then blesses the sons before he dies, especially giving special blessing in chapter 49 to Joseph and Judah. By the way, if you're just footnoting here, chapter 49 is one of the most important chapters in the structure of all five books of Moses. As you see, this literary structure of poetic chapters right after long sections of narrative. So if you turn over to chapter 49, you'll notice the way it's indented. It's Hebrew poetry. It's not written like a narrative like the rest of the story. And that's because this is a commentary on everything that you've just heard in the narrative section, which is a long narrative section. It went from Genesis 12 to Genesis 48. And this pattern persists throughout the rest of the five books of Moses. So footnote over. For now, let's go to chapter 50 and see the very close. Israel dies, so the father, Jacob, dies. And now the sons, and this is what we heard from Paul's scripture reading earlier in the service. The brothers are now wondering, okay, he's dead. Is he going to get his revenge now? Do you remember what we just read in chapter 45? Joseph still believes those words about God and his sovereignty. Let me read to, them, to you those words again. Chapter 50, verse 19 and following. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in God, the place of God? As for you, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly 
to him. What a story. A real story. Remember? Those are three things we need to learn. This is a real story, and it is about how God really works in human history, and more particularly, salvation history. This story has the power to change and transform your life starting today, or help you if God has begun that. This story is pointing to the ultimate story that all good stories point. So what do I mean by this story having the power to change and transform your life now, today? Now remember that little tidbit I asked you to remember. How old was Joseph when he became the right-hand man to Pharaoh? Do you remember? 30. There we go. We got some listeners. Good. So now ask yourself, how old was he at the start of the story? 17. You guys quick with math? That's 13 years. Think about that for a second. Let that sit in. We just covered 13 years of a man's life, a roller coaster of a life. Things looked good, and they got really bad. Things looked really good, and then they got worse. Now, why does that matter? Because Joseph is able to see that all of those 13 years, God meant for good. God meant for good. Every little detail of the story. God sent me here to Egypt. You didn't send me to slavery. God did. What about when he was thrown into prison? Even though he did what was right, he didn't give in to sexual temptation. He wasn't like Judah, and it still went bad for him. Thirteen long years, and he says, no, God put me here, even though all of these things were meant for evil. God meant it for good, to save. That, my friends, is a life-transforming perspective. Do you have it? Do you have this resource? It's available here in God's Word for you. It's being offered to you right this moment. You don't have to wait till after the fact to figure out that God is working now. You already know the point of this story in part is so that you would read chapter 50, verse 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, and you can read that over all of human history, including your life and every detail of it. It just so happened that he ran into a man in Shechem that was wandering lost. Take that detail out, he goes back home. The random lost man, it's not just a random lost man anymore, is it? Read through the details of this story and your story and know that there is a God who's in control. Even in the dark days. Or shall we say, especially in the dark days? He's even using evil. Could the story be more explicit in its language and what it's trying to teach us here? I was telling Christine earlier in the week, I think this is the easiest sermon I can preach. Just tell you the story and point out, look exactly what this text says. God is sovereign over everything, including all events in history, even evil. If there's any of you here that just feel like I have been praying and I have been waiting, I want to just ask you, 
Have you even waited 13 years? Even 13 days. I know, just that number 13, 13 long years of questioning, of doubting. Maybe you're in the middle of year one, day one. Maybe you're in year 22. Do you have Joseph's perspective? God means everything for his good and his glory and your good and his glory. This, my friends, changes our lives. Even when God seems hidden or absent to you, it does not mean he is hidden or absent. Let me say that again because this is so important for you. Even if God seems to be hidden or absent, that does not mean he is hidden or absent. Did you remember that while Joseph was in prison, if you go back through the story, you'll notice it says God was with him. I wonder if that's enough for us. Are those two truths enough for you? That no matter what difficulty, struggle, pain, suffering, sin you are currently going through, God is working all things for good, and number two, God is with you. Just like he is with Joseph. The new covenant promise makes this explicitly clear. All those who are baptized in Christ and are his disciples, he will be with you to the end of the age, he promises. So yes, he's working everything for good, and he's with you. Is that enough? What more do you need? It's only our unbelief and our sin that would doubt or question otherwise that we need something else. His grace, my friends, is in fact sufficient to know that he is working, to know that he is in in charge and in control. He's got this. That's what I kept saying to myself. I got this, Phil. Tell that to the people. I've got their lives. I've got every detail of their life. They don't need to worry anymore. If you know this, that's life-transforming power. You have a resource to never worry ever again because God's got it. Isn't that good news to us? That He's got it. He's got everything. There are just too many lessons for us to share in one message, but let me quickly, just in kind of rapid succession, help you remember that God is working even through family drama. Anyone got broken families? Anyone feeling family drama? There is some family drama going on in these stories, is there not? Of the craziest kind. In spite of parents who choose favorites, I don't recommend it. I don't think the story is either. It goes badly. Don't choose favorites, parents. That's not its main lesson, but God is working even in spite of it. He uses even sexual sin and people that sins sexually and turns it for good. Remember the Judah story. This is not just an interruption and a weird story in the Joseph story. Judah ends up being the one through whom the King David and Jesus Christ will be born. It's through tribe of Judah. Why do you think Tamar is in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1? Because God uses even sexual sin, a man sleeping with his daughter-in-law, for good. That means there are no sins that you are committing today and tomorrow and the next day that God can't redeem and use for your good. God uses elected officials, kings, governors, captains. Do you see all of the different political people that are in this story? We need to remember that God is both using government figures like Joseph, who's the right-hand man to the king Pharaoh, and all the different public servants in this story 
And at times we see the good in the way that God is using public servants to save people. And that's in fact what their job is to do, is to be a servant to the people. But we also know that government officials don't get it right. Like Potiphar, even though he didn't seem like a corrupt guy as far as we can tell, public officials get it wrong and God still uses that for his good. So whether they're good and do the right decisions or whether they're bad and they do the wrong decisions, God uses all public officials, presidents, Supreme Court justices and their rulings, governors, mayors, for his good. Nothing can stop his plan ever, ever, ever. Do not be worried about Trump if you like him or don't. He is in the hand of God and he's got it. He's got it. You don't need to worry. God is at work. Is your hope in the God who is at work or in the government officials who have recently been elected? Reading social media makes me think some of us are struggling with this a lot. God is at work. God is at work through dreams. Yes. How prominent are dreams in this story? Joseph's dreams? Pharaoh's dreams? Cupbearer's dreams? Does God speak through dreams, Pastor Phil? Yeah, he does. Does he do that even in the New Testament? Yes, he does. So does it seem like God is even at work while we're unconscious and sleeping? Yes, it does seem that he is. So should I call you after every dream I have in the next morning and ask you to interpret it? No, you should not. Please do not. These are rare stories. I don't think that we should be looking at every dream to look for some sort of meaning or hidden thing behind them. But clearly God seems to use dreams. And so maybe some of you, God has given you a dream about Jesus And you need to follow that dream and what it is speaking to you about Jesus. It is so clear throughout the world right now that God is giving dreams to people who are from all over the world that have never heard about Jesus and they get a dream about Jesus and they're told, go talk to somebody about Jesus. He's still doing that today. He's most likely communicating to you on a normal basis through his word, not your dreams. So again, a little caveat. But man, is God working in every which way possible in this story and in our lives. Are you starting to see that this is a life-transforming story? And that if you would gain this eternal perspective, what that might do to you today? It's here. You have this resource. It's here and it's being offered. Would you just take it? Whether you're a Christian and you've been told these things before, would you take it afresh and remind yourself he's in control? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, would you take by faith that there is a God who has created everything and he's in control of everything and he made you and he ordained that you'd be here today to hear this message? And you're here to understand that this story is real. It's not just a cliche that everything happens for a reason. No, this is true, that things do happen and even the darkest days of suffering and trials are pointing to a bigger and deeper story. Remember I started with J.R. Tolkien and the author of The Lord of the Rings. He, through some different conversations, helped another man who was an atheist. This man's name was C.S. Lewis, another lover of stories. C.S. Lewis did not believe in God, but through the relationship with J.R. Tolkien, he started to believe That the story of Jesus Christ was not just one more story pointing to these truths and realities that they hoped to be true, 
but rather the story of Jesus Christ is the ultimate story to which all these other myths, legends, and fiction stories point to. Jesus is the underlying reality that all stories of love ultimately point to. Jesus is the story of forgiveness that all stories point to, including the stories in Genesis, as we've seen week after week, and especially this story. I hope by now it is just so obvious. Of course this is a story that has echoes and shadows of the greatest story that could ever be told, the story of a man named Jesus. Thousands of years later, who would come and he would be the beloved son, the son that was robed and set apart from every other son. This one was not proud, though. He was loving. He was kind. He was humble. He so humbled himself. He did not try and proudly wear that robe of love. Rather, he was willing to let it go. He was betrayed by his closest brothers, and he was stripped naked and sold for silver, just like Joseph. This Jesus was thrown into prison and suffered innocently, even though he did not do the wrong thing, just like Joseph. This Jesus would trust in God's plan all the way to the end and knew that God was working for good. And this Jesus was not just another man. He was the God-man, fully God, fully man, loving his enemies, not repaying evil for evil, but repaying evil for good and forgiving those who betrayed him. This Jesus, just like Judah, put before Joseph and said, look, I'll trade, I'll be a substitute. Jesus was the ultimate substitute who gave his life and said, I will give my life for their life so that they can be saved. And this Jesus did not just metaphorically die like Joseph did. Everybody thought Joseph was dead, especially Israel. He did not metaphorically die. He literally died as he hung naked on that tree. And as it seemed Joseph resurrected to the family of Israel, so Jesus resurrected from the dead. And what happened when Jesus resurrected from the dead is he sat at the right hand of God the Father, just like Joseph sat at the right hand of the most powerful man in all the world. The story is ultimately pointing to a greater Joseph, a greater Judah, Jesus Christ. So that you now can have ultimate certainty that this story isn't just real, but it has life-transforming power because ultimately this story is about Jesus. And the story that he offers you is that God means even the worst evils in the world for good. Do you know what the worst evil in the world is? Killing God's son? I don't think it gets much worse than that. And that's in fact what humans did in human history. And God took the worst event and the worst sin, and the worst evil of human history, and he made it the greatest good, and the greatest story, and the most wonderful act of love that you could ever dream of. That's why he's the greater underlying reality that all good stories point to. So the next time you go to the movies, and you're inspired, and you're in awe, know that there's a greater story behind that story. The one where there is an ultimate reality that's real, and it's true, and it's offered to you to know that God's in control. I hope and pray that we would all receive and accept this Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks this morning. We are not deserving of the gift that you're offering us today. This life-transforming, eternal perspective of you being sovereignly in control. 
that in and of itself would be worth all eternity of praise and adoration and worship, that you, you are the God who is sovereign and in control. But you give us more. You shower us with blessing. You don't just give us the God who's sovereign and in control. You give us the God who empties himself in the form of a human, who becomes the innocent suffering servant, who gets stripped naked, betrayed, and does it all for your good and glory. This is breathtakingly wonderful. Thank you, God. Thank you for this gift. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for this study through Genesis. Your word is too good for us to even give words to describe how thankful we are for how good it is. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.